The views and opinions of the guests of Veterans Archives do not reflect the views and opinions of Veterans Archives, its subsidiaries, or its partners. Hello and welcome to Veterans Archives. This is a podcast where you can learn about our military history in the words and voices of the men and women who lived and created it. I'm your host, Bill Krieger, and let's listen to our next story. Today is April 14th, 2022. I'm talking with Herb Elfring, who served in the United States Army during World War II. For the audience, I had been talking with Carolyn Bloodworth, and she had mentioned uh, that you had worked at Consumers Energy, retired uh, 35 years ago, and that you are a survivor of Pearl Harbor. And I wanted to talk with you and uh, find out a little bit about who you are and, and what you did, not only at Consumers, but what it was like to be uh, at Pearl Harbor on that day. Before we get there, I'd like to kind of find out where you uh, started out, because from what I understand, you are not a Michigan native, but uh, you come from Montana. Actually born in South Dakota. Well, okay. So you originally come from South Dakota. I was born in South Dakota. Okay. Watertown on the farm in 1922, of course. And uh, uh, livelihood on the farm, of course, was... <laughs> Looking back on it, it seems like it was more or less day day by day because there was no extra. Right. And when the uh, dry years came in the early 30s, uh, it took us toll, and uh, my dad was not able to raise enough money to pay the interest on the mortgage, and we lost the farm. Uh, so uh, we lost that farm in 1932, and it broke up the family. I stayed with my uncle, and my sister stayed with some other uh, relatives. And, and then along comes 1933, and my sister heard about the uh, Fort Peck Dam project being authorized in Montana across the uh, Missouri River. And uh, it so happened that we had... Uh, my mother's sister's family that lived nearby, and also my my grandmother, my my mother's mother, and so we uh, and my, my dad got uh, through the, my sister's influence, got got the family together with a with an old Buick that he still had for some reason, and a and a trailer I guess we had left over from the sale of the farm. And headed for Montana. Well, now that sounds like a, that sounds like quite a journey. So, if I understand, born in 1922, the uh, stock market crashed, the depression hit. So, this project that you're talking about is now was that part of the what the CCC or the Civilian Conservation Corps? I don't think it had any direct connection with any of them. It was a it was a project that was probably in the mill all along. Say. In the early, early 30s, but finally got authorized in 1933. Okay. So we headed for Montana and stayed, got there with our Grapes of Wrath, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
landmark, I guess you might say. And uh, that was the days when the roads weren't blacktopped and a lot of gravel roads and a lot of time on the road. And we finally got there and got to my, uh, my aunt's place. And she put us all up for, for whatever reason, you know. <laughs> and then uh, the... the uh, the dam was authorized to be built in the fall of 1933, and my father, luckily, was one of the first uh, common labor help hired on the project. And uh, as a result, we uh, moved from my, my aunt's place to a, a place closer to the project, and uh that's where that's where I lived then until uh I uh went to the country school the eighth grade. My first my schooling was in a one room schoolhouse for eight years, uh both in South Dakota and Montana. Well, that must have been quite an experience. That's everybody in the same room, basically, right? Yeah. From uh, kindergarten all the way up. All the way up, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, uh, I graduated from the, the country school then, and for, from which we walked to school a couple of miles every every day to school and back, you know. And in wintertime, it didn't make any difference. So... Uh, uh, I, I started to high school then in Glasgow, Montana, which was about 12 miles from, from the project. Mm-hmm. So I would ride to work with my dad, catch the bus, and then ride the bus to, to Glasgow about 12 miles away. So. That's quite a journey every day, and that's every, in every, the winter, summer, whatever. Yeah, every right? day, yeah. <laughs> And of course, Montana, the weather would get pretty severe in the wintertime. I, I experienced a couple of days of 63 degrees below zero in Montana. Okay, so I got to stop you there. Yes. When you started to say 63, I thought, well, that's warm weather. And then you said below zero. I, I can't even imagine 63 degrees below zero. That's, that's, that's awful, cold. That's awfully cold stuff. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. But it lasted for a couple of days. And then it was only for only did it happen one year that way, but uh, I don't recall what some of the other cold days were, but they're well in the forties, you know. Mm-hmm. So you learn to live with it. <clears throat> but uh, I would then ride ride to work with my dad, catch the bus, go to go on into Glasgow, Montana, to the high school, and I did that for two years. Freshman and junior year, I of course didn't have time to play, stay at school and play sports, so I did not uh, get involved with sports of any kind. Then, uh, as the project grew, uh, they were able to open up a, uh, a junior senior class in high school at Fort Peck. So, I finished my two years of high school at Fort Peck, Montana, and I graduated in 1939. 
So it sounds to me like education was pretty important in your family because it would have been very easy for you just to go to work uh, and contribute and not continue your yeah. education. Well, it's certainly uh, certainly I, something that I guess I had in mind because uh, my brother older than me did not go on to high school. You know, mm-hmm. he rather find a job and work someplace. You know. Uh, so I graduated in 1939, and uh, my brother, oldest brother, was in the Navy, married, and lived in San Diego. And he inv- he invited me to come to San Diego to go to San Diego State. Well, it just happened that there was a family that uh, was uh, living near the project that we heard about that wanted to go move to Sacramento, California. But they needed somebody to drive a small truck that they had along with them in the car and pulling a trailer, you know. So I wound up, I was uh, 17 years old at the time, driving that truck from Montana, Fort Peck, Montana, to Sacramento, California. Interesting interesting coincidence, right? Yeah. It just so happens that they're yeah. kind of headed your way and they, they needed your help. That's, yeah, right. That's pretty amazing. So fortunately, we got there in one piece, and uh, then I caught a bus on to San Diego, California, from Sacramento, and wound up uh, starting to San Diego State as planned. And the uh, uh, well, as it turned out, it was in the uh, second term because I was short on on math projects to qualify to start as a freshman at San Diego State. So I. Uh, I worked for a bricklayer then as a hot carrier and took night classes in in math in order to qualify to start San Diego State in in January 1940. Uh, That all all worked out okay, but while I was at San Diego State, I, I was Got acquainted with a fellow that was, uh, or a student that was in the National Guard, the California National Guard. Okay. And this would be 1940, uh, spring, or early 1940s. So. And of course at that time, you know, dollars were hard to find and, and we could go to drill on the weekend and earn an extra buck. And, I actually had joined the National Guard in Montana when I was 16. Really? So was, what, what's that all about? Which, which was a common practice for young guys to do that, just to earn a little extra money, and mm-hmm. and they needed they needed the uh, recruits anyway, so it all worked out. Anyway, uh, uh, I uh, went on to school then in the spring of 1940 at San Diego State, and also did drills in the California National Guard on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, the regiment was uh, did their summer summer uh, two-weeks encampments 
which happened to be up in Washington. So we went on, went up uh, to uh, an area of Fort Lewis, Washington, and conducted our two weeks of drill up there. Came back to San Diego, uh, that'd be probably in June of 1940. Then along comes September 16th, 1940, and the California National Guard was activated full time. So now I'm in the Army. Probably not what you were expecting. That wasn't, wasn't <laughs> expected at all. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we, we, the whole regiment then was, uh, pulled into a camp out there at uh, Ventura, California. And in November 1940, the whole regiment was deployed to, to Hawaii. Uh, the island of Oahu where, uh, Honolulu is. So again, probably not what you were expecting. No, not at all. But, uh, but not a bad thing, right? It's Hawaii. Well, fortunately, it was Hawaii instead of the Philippines. Yes. Because had I, had the regiment gone to the Philippines, we probably would have wound up on that Bataan Death March. Mm-hmm. So we were in Hawaii then a whole year before the Japanese uh, uh, bomb Pearl Harbor, but that's probably probably a kind of a misnomer in a way because the Japanese hit every other military installation on the island, which included our camp Malakoli, which was down down the shoreline from Pearl Harbor, uh, a few miles. I don't know exactly how many. So. What were you doing in Hawaii? You know, I know things were heating up around the world with, with the war that was going on, but why did they activate you and how, why, why Hawaii of all places? I, I, I don't really, you know, as a, I was a buck private at the time. Well, that's true. They probably and, don't tell you these things. And, <laughs> and uh, totally new to the army, you might say. And, uh, uh, that, that theory never got down to my level, and I, and I, I, as at that level, I guess we weren't too in, too inquisitive either at the time. So. Right. So, what did you do while you were there? Uh, so, prior to the well, the, uh, the regiment was made up of uh, batteries, and San Diego was battery A and was a searchlight battery. Uh, like Long Beach, I think they had uh, automatic weapons battery, and then uh, uh, San Francisco probably was uh, it might have had the anti-aircraft guns, the big guns, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was. It was called the 251st Coast Artillery Anti-Aircraft. So we had those different. Uh, Weapons for anti-aircraft use. Okay. And I think our our intended use was was to defend airfields for the most part. So uh, uh, Japs hit Pearl Harbor, and of course the term Pearl Harbor survivor doesn't apply to just the Navy. Right. 
Which is interesting because when we think about Pearl Harbor, we think about the USS Arizona and we think about the Navy. Yeah. Um, so I was a little surprised to find out that you were in the Army. Yeah. Uh, but the Japanese knew where every military installation was on the island and they, they, they hit all of them, you know. Army, Navy, uh, Marines, the whole, the whole gamut, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, Wheeler, Wheeler, Wheeler Field in the, in the center of the island and Schofield Barracks, uh, they, they hit those, you know. So, uh, uh, you did not have to be a sailor to be qualified as a, as a Pearl Harbor survivor, in other words. Right, and that's, that's some education for me. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, my son, uh, probably 10 years ago, who was in the Army, uh, just like his dad, was stationed at Schofield Barracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure a whole lot's changed in all that time, although it might have gotten a little bit better. Um, it was, uh, from all accounts, it was a, a pretty, it was a nice place to be, but it was a pretty tough place to be as well. Um, it's a huge installation there. Yes. I don't know that. Yeah, they take up a lot of territory. <laughs> and there's, a, there's an aircraft uh, landing field there, too. Uh, so so you're... called Wheeler, Wheeler Field, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you were in Hawaii, and you're doing your job. You're you're uh, uh, doing what you do there. And so, what 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 happened, kind of leading up to to the attack, and then what happened uh, during the attack? And, and well, as, as as time went on, uh, radar was just coming into existence at that time, and uh, we uh, the battery A. Obtained a, uh, uh, a radar at that time of that big and antennas, you know. Uh huh. And, uh, it was used to pick up airplanes, but the, but the, uh, the, uh, capability of it was limited to, I think, 40, 40,000 yards, which is not very far away. Oh, nothing compared to how far we can see out now. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, uh, 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 after we got to Hawaii in 1940, November 1940, why, uh, we started out in, in pup tent, or not tents, but, but t- army tents at, at Schofield Barracks, and then, uh, we moved to Camp Malakoli, which is down the shoreline from Pearl Harbor, and built our own our own camp out of lumber, <laughs> All right. rough lumber, and uh, so that was called Camp Malakoli. And uh, uh, we would we would work building the camp in the morning, and maybe doing some army exercises of some kind in the afternoon, you know. And, uh, that long, one long just fine until, uh, the Japanese hit on December 7th, 1941. So, uh, uh, that was a, a very quiet Sunday morning, as you've heard, no doubt. And, 
I could hear the bombing toward, down toward Pearl Harbor Way, but didn't think too much about it and thought the Navy must be having some kind of a war exercise of some kind down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were down the shoreline, but a little too far away to see the actual action. You could, but we could hear, definitely could hear the bombing, you know. The next thing I knew, uh, I was reading the bulletin board on the corner of the barracks and, uh, I could hear this this plane coming, and didn't think too much about it. The next thing I knew, uh, there was a line of strafing balls that went right past me, about fifteen feet away. Well, that'll wake you up. <laughs> and it sure. went went across into the the next battery area, and a fellow got hit in the stomach, but lived. Mm-hmm. He lived, and then. Uh, the word soon got out. First of all, and I think the landing boats went down and I looked up and saw this plane and had a red ball on the fuselage, you know. Yeah. I thought, my God, that's a Japanese plane. What's it doing here, you know? Yeah. And, uh, that was a surprise attack on our, on our camp. And then, uh, and the word Soon got out that we were under attack and we all went to our designated positions, which at that time was, uh, this new radar that, uh, we got in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, I, I was in the squad that was designed, uh, uh, uh detailed to uh, operate it. We got out to the radar and, uh, and I've been there just, just a little while, I had the, had time to get the engine started for for power to power up the radar, and uh, I could hear this this plane coming, you know, across the treetops. And they really weren't trees, but they were more like shrubs. Okay. And uh, I could hear it coming, saw it coming, and well, jumped on underneath the radar, and. And I could see, I could, I could, from where I was, I could see the plane coming. And it, it, it veered just, just a little bit as it opened up for some reason. And the line of bullets went between the radar and the, and the, uh, and the power plant and severed the power cable that supplied the power to the radar. And that was another close call that morning. Well, that's two. <laughs> that's two. <laughs> two. So, uh, I don't know, I don't know exactly how many zeros did any strafing on the camp, but anyway, that was two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So now the radar is not going to operate because you, the cables and no, the cables yes, wouldn't have okay. But it wouldn't do any good. In the, the purpose of it was not for, for daylight, uh, information. It was designed for, for picking up airplanes. Mm-hmm. To be able to direct the, uh, anti-aircraft guns on the plane as, as we would like the, uh, search, searchlights to pick up the, pick up the target. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what did you do from there? Uh, well that, that day then it became real quiet, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, real quiet for several days after that. So, uh, we uh, just went on about our army job then of uh, of uh, 
doing exercises, and uh, along comes uh, June of 1942, and we we were deployed to the Fiji Islands. Again, our uh, regimental uh, main purpose is to defend airfields, actually. So they had built a, uh, an airstrip on Fiji already, mm-hmm. and they were totally expecting the Japanese to get to Fiji Island. So they deployed us down there to defend the airfield. And uh, as it turned out, the Japanese never did get there. So we didn't see any action on Fiji. We got there in June of 1942 and uh, and were there until, uh, I think, the fall of uh, 1943. All right. But uh, as time went on, I was advanced from private to first class and sergeant and staff sergeant. And uh, there was an uh, infantry regiment on the island also that needed officers. And uh, they ran they ran two OCS day-to-day schools there. They needed uh, infantry officers, but for some reason they could use a few no military military police military officers not oh, not not military police oh, just uh, general military officers yeah yeah okay so uh, uh, another fellow in our in our regiment not in our bribery was was selected to go in the second session I was selected to go so I I became a Second lieutenant in in January nineteen forty three. We kind of have that in common. I was I was enlisted for a, a while and then went to to OCS to get my commission yeah. as an officer. Uh-huh. And uh, so you got your commission, and, and then what happened? Well, then uh, I continued in in the uh, radar phase of the of the operation. So I became radar officer then, but for some reason we didn't really get any updated radar equipment. Oh, so we were we were kind of stuck with that same old radar, you know. Mm-hmm. However, I had a chance to go back up to Honolulu in uh, about September '43 to a month of radar school. And while I was there, I I met my brother that was in the infantry, had been up in Alaska with the 7th Division and was sent to the uh, uh, Hawaii for redeployment. How was that reunion? Well, that was a surprise to him and me, too, of course. (laughs) And I I just, while I was at school, one weekend I was riding the bus and I saw this soldier with a 7th Division patch on his uniform, and that's what I do. That's what my brother was in. So, uh, I had had some previous friends from when we were, before we went to Fiji. I was visiting some previous friends, and he had some military connections, and so he, he, he took me out to where my brother's uh, Regiment was uh, deployed, 
And so when I called on my brother, he was a total surprise to him, of course. <laughs> but we had a chance to see each other uh, during during the month that I was there. And uh, one, one weekend, we decided to call home. And uh, we did. And uh, we talked for 15 minutes. And the bill was $75. Let's take a quick break. Veterans Archives is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations from our listeners. If you are enjoying these stories and would like to support our continued efforts, please go to www.veteransarchives.org and select the donate button. Thank you. You know, that's uh, a lot of money today. That's had to have been a lot of money. That was back a bunch. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was uh, more than that. I probably would make it come out three months, I guess, something like that. Anyway, we were happy to have done that, of course. Then his regiment went on to uh, the Philippines where he was injured and, and, and it came out of it okay. But uh, getting back to my own uh, uh, regiment there in, uh, in Fiji, uh, after my commission, later, later in 1943, we were deployed to the Solomon Islands. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we had just built a, 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 an airstrip on the island of Bougainville. And... Uh, uh, we were deployed there to defend, defend that airstrip. And, uh, uh, action was not very, very much because we only were, were alerted a couple of times, you know, for, for, uh, trying to pick up Japanese planes that come over to annoy, annoy us, you know. Mm-hmm. But one thing that we did do there on uh, Bougainville was we knew we knew that the Japanese were still on the island, and uh, well, so the G, what they call G two, they got information that the Japs were making going to make a counterattack on our location there, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the Americal Division and I think the 37th different divisions were both there. So uh, uh, apparently they were pro- properly alerted about the uh, uh, information information the Japs were going to do, and uh, they were going to make a night a, a night attack. And it was a cloudy night, and uh, they asked us to. Uh, Prepare our searchlights for shining up on what would be probably anticipated as the as the front lines for the Japanese, mm-hmm. and uh, there was enough light reflected back down on the on the ground so that the the infantry regiments could 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 see the Japanese attackers coming in, see, and. 
and took good care of the Jaffa attack because of that. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so not just searchlights, right? But you're actually able to illuminate the ground where they were coming in. That's, yeah, right. That's really advantageous that uh, you yeah. guys are able to yeah, do that. It was a big help. And fortunately, uh, uh, the, the searchlights didn't get damaged because of it either. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's very good. Yeah. So how long were you on? Uh, how long were you at Bougainville, and then and what did you do after that? Uh, Bougainville, we got. Down there uh, in 1944, we moved. We moved from. Uh, we were still on Bougainville then until 1944, and then in like December of 44, we were deployed to the Philippine Islands, and uh, we. Uh, the whole the whole regiment was headed for Clark Field. Mm-hmm. That, that was the the main military uh, airstrip in on the island of Luzon. Now on the way on the way we experienced a kamikaze diver, and it happened to be for, it happened to be the ship next to my ship. There were several ships in the convoy. Uh huh. And. Uh, it was an evening where they, they spotted this, this kamikaze diver, and I think every ship in the convoy was firing at it. The, the diver picked out a, his target as the ship next to mine. And when he come down to his target, he, he, he missed the target. And landed just behind the target, very close to the, the sternum, which indicated he might have gotten a little flack on his way down or something. Uh-huh. Anyway, the plane hit the water and broke into flames and sank, and no damage was done to the to, to his target. Sounds like a lot of near misses uh, while you were yeah <laughs> while you were in the army. <laughs> yeah. You're a very fortunate man. Well, I, I, I guess I didn't mention about a, a breakfast one, one, one morning on, on, on Bougainville. And, and I mentioned that there are still Japs on the island, you know, and we got there. And, uh, I suppose that was an army five inch gun or something like that, a howitzer. Landed right next to the breakfast. Like a chow hall. that we had, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was a dud. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, that was a close call. Oh, no doubt. So anyway, on, uh, on the way to the Philippines, uh, uh, we, we were not on, on a landing ship, it was a, a troop ship. Mm-hmm. And we crawled, crawled down the rope ladder. Into a landing craft to go ashore, and when it came to the shoreline, we ran into a, a sandbar, and the landing craft couldn't get all the way in, so we had to to wade in. And from the sandbar, of course, the water got deeper before it got back on the shore, and 
Some of us wound up with water up to our neck, you know, wading into shore. But anyway, well, we got in okay. Uh huh. And fortunately, because of so many guns shelling the shoreline that morning, why there was no opposition at all getting ashore. So. Well, that's fortunate. It sounds yeah. like between the sandbar and the water, at least you didn't have to deal with the enemy at that point. Right. We didn't. Right. Right. So that that was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. So you were on the the Philippines. Um, we went there uh, January ninth, nineteen forty five. Okay. And our job there, of course, was to defend the air Clark Field airstrip. And uh, the uh, the the air activity that the Japs had was very has already been pretty much pushed north, so. There was very little activity by the Japanese mm-hmm. aircraft as far as bombing Luzon. And so we really didn't have any very, very, very little to do on, on uh, defending the airstrip on Clark, or well, Clark, Clark Field airstrip on Luzon. Uh, as a result, we, we were Kind of moved on down toward Manila to do various chores down there until July of 1945. Because I'd been overseas so long, I had a lot of what they call points. Yes, and <clears throat> I had enough points to, uh, to to go back to the U.S. for reassignment, which I chose to do in July of 1945. And, uh, uh, I got there probably late July, I guess, because I was back home to Montana and on leave in August when the first bomb was dropped on, uh, Hiroshima. And, uh, and then the, the second one was dropped on the ninth of Nagasaki uh, on the ninth of uh, August, nineteen forty-five. Why, uh, I I got a, a, a telegram from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to report for separation from the service already before the war was over in Japan. Oh my gosh. So when you, I wanted to ask though, so when you heard about uh, the bombs being dropped on uh, Japan, did did you or did the people around you realize how big that was? No, not at all, because, well, I was home on leave, of course. Right. And, uh, and uh, all, all we heard was the bombs were dropped we didn't, and didn't have any idea how how, how devastating they were. At least I didn't. And, uh, the first one was on Hiroshima and the second one was on Nagasaki. But you knew something had happened because all of a sudden now they're going to process you for discharge. <laughs> now, because I hadn't been able to take any leave, my official separation from the service was in November 1945. 
November, November 18th, after after the Japanese surrendered in in in, in September 1945. Well, and getting back to the point system, it's interesting because I've heard other uh, <laughs> veterans talk about that. And at the height of the of World War II, even though there was a point system in place. Um, you know, well, well before you were able to rotate back to the states, they kind of suspended that. Like, like people thought they were going to come home, and then they didn't because the the war was raging at that time, especially in in Europe. Oh yeah, and and on the on the ground there. So uh, it was a great point system if it worked. Um, but as you and I both know, uh, it doesn't always happen the way no. we want it to in the military. That's for sure. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So you go to Fort Leavenworth and you get processed for discharge and, and now what? Well, then I then I'm on my own, you know, and what a what an empty feeling that really is, you know. Here I'm turned out, not not no job or anything, you know, no income, no one. And so anyway, did you miss I, the guys? Because I, I remember. Being in the National Guard, I remember I did a combat deployment to Iraq. Uh, I was glad to come home, um, but there was a part of me that missed all those people I'd been hanging around with. How that how did oh, that feel uh, for you? That's, that's right, because uh, uh, I went in with a lot of young guys, high school kids, you know, in September 1940. Yeah, and you spent a lot of time with them. With them, yeah, like. That was all you did was spend time with them, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. Did you keep in contact with any of them? I did. I did for a lot of years, and they've, of course, they've all passed on now. I may be the only guy left from our battery of the 251st Coast Artillery. I could find out, but I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah, I guess after all these years, it'd be hard to yeah. maybe track yeah. people down. But yeah. that's uh, yeah. that's that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, we talked about you uh, you retired from Consumers Energy. Um, so let's let's go back to you got out. Here you are, kind of on your own, no job, no nothing, and you got your paperwork in your hand. Yeah, here it is. Uh, well, it's uh, probably August uh, sometime. And I, I, uh, it was a time when, uh, uh, the Army and Navy, I guess, or had a lot of planes to fly, but no reason to fly them anymore, you know. <laughs> right. But they'd find excuses to go someplace. And I was able to, uh, get a ride to, to Florida on, uh, on a military plane. Free, free ride, you know. Oh, yes. And, uh, because I, my sister was there, and her husband, so I said, well, that'd be a good thing to do, just, just go over there and see my sister. While I was there, I was like, oh, God, how can I get down to Trinidad to see my brother in the Navy? <laughs> and so I went to Banana River, Florida, and got a, a seaplane to Puerto Rico. Was that a pretty exciting flight? <laughs> yeah, well, it was different, you know. Yeah, seaplane. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of noise when you land on the water. I noticed that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so from there, I was able to get a plane on into Tr- Trinidad. Saw my brother, saw him a few days, 
I was able to catch an Army transport plane to uh, to Miami. And we got to Miami just ahead of a hurricane, so I experienced a hurricane in Miami. Uh, oh, my God. That would be, well, 1945, about, uh, I guess that would be summer, September, sometime, I guess. Yeah, it's right around hurricane season, yeah. September, October. Yeah. Right after Jeff surrendered. Yeah. Yeah, so from there, from there I hitchhiked back up to the Banana River. And uh, how did I get over to Eglin Field? Eglin Field, Army Army Field, Eglin Field. Yep. And uh, anyway, I did, and uh, from there I was able to catch a, an Army plane to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and another one to Glendale, California. Right back to where it all kind of started from. <laughs> well, I wanted, I wanted to get back to San Diego because while I was in. Uh, while I was in Trinidad, uh, my brother was chief, and at that time the Navy had pilots that were chiefs. So, uh, well, anyway, I, while I was there, why uh, uh, it was decided that a plane should fly back to Bremerton, California, for overhaul of some kind, mm-hmm. and and these two chiefs were. Resident to take that plane back. Well, anyway, I, I, uh, and San Diego was one of their stopping off places. So I got to San Diego from Glendale, California, to visit my brother's wife, and while I was there, and and they they came into California as as planned. I got I got on the plane one day then and headed for Bremerton, California, uh, Washington, with these two chiefs. <laughs> Sounds like an adventure in in the beginning. We got as far as Long Beach and we got socked in with weather mm-hmm. for for three days and then didn't know really when we'd take off again. But somehow or another, I'd arranged a a, a flight. From the area to McCook Field, Nebraska, in the Army, an Army, Army plane. And that's what I did. I went to Cook Field, Nebraska, and then he sagged on up to, uh, Watertown, South Dakota, where my sister and her husband had a farm, where I was born. Also. So a complete circle now, right? <laughs> you sound very resourceful, uh, because none, it doesn't sound like you were buying tickets and planning this out. It was just hot. Getting there by chance. It just happened. What did it feel like to be back, uh, kind of back to your roots, back where you came from? Well, I'll tell you the most, the most touching sight I'll ever experience in my life, I think, was sailing underneath the Golden Gate Bridge on the way home in 1945. Mm -hmm. After leaving in 1940. It's a long time to be away yeah. from home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I have to ask. So you spent a lot of time in flights going to visit family. How important is family to you, Herb? Huh. I'd say very important. And the family is very close, even though we're spread out terribly. 
I have two sons here in Michigan, a son and daughter in, in Texas, mm-hmm. and a daughter in, in Florida. But it sounds like you spent your whole life, even though you were in the military and you were gone, um, it was so important to be with family, even when uh, when your father uh, lost the farm and your family was kind of split up, you kind of yeah. came back together. Yeah. Um, that must have been kind of an amazing feeling to yeah. see them yeah. again. Yeah, it was. But, you know, <laughs> you just do what you have to do. And of course, you didn't. You 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 grew up to that point with without much of anything anyway. So hardship was very hard for some. Would have been for some people, but it didn't seem that bad to us, even though it seems like it was almost an opportunity for well, you in uh, some in some way. Well, it was. It turned out to be an opportunity to get to Montana and my dad to get employed and right get the family back together. Yeah. So you you uh, you come home uh, back to where everything started and then and then and then what happened from there? Well, I I spent uh, the fall then uh, hunting pheasants in South Dakota pretty much. That must have felt good. It did. It must have felt I would even say great maybe. <laughs> but of course the uh, there was no income anymore, and uh, whatever I did on the farm I was just free gratis for staying there. You know. It was, Sister, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, I had uh, enrolled at the University of Michigan. So, when uh, fall came, I headed for Michigan. And so that's what brought you to Michigan. Yeah, that's what brought me to Michigan. All right. I was yeah. trying to figure out how the story was going to come around to Michigan. Well, so you end up at U of M. It was probably a couple of guys that I was in the service with uh, that were Michiganders and uh-huh. they talked Michigan and seems like well well I well, what I tell people is on the GI Bill you could go any place. And so why not go to the best I tell <laughs> Now my brother in law would agree with you. My brother in law Louie uh, graduated from University of Michigan um, with a law degree, so oh, yeah. uh, he would agree with you to this day that he went to the best place that you could go to. So I'm gonna make sure I pass that along <laughs> to him. He'll 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 get a chuckle out of it. Yeah, well, they had a good football team that in those days too. You know, so. sounds like they're coming back around. Yeah, well they hit a hit a hit a bad hump in the road there with Georgia, but uh, uh, anyway. Harbaugh's made a big change this past season. It's all that's oh, safe. Yeah. Well, and I think the Big Ten looks pretty good now. We're going to have some good football games for 2022. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to so go to University of Michigan. I don't want to get too far off track here. So you you get there, and, and, and now what? What did you study, and, and how was it to be there? Well, I, I guess the fact that I was in radar during the war involved electricity a little bit, but well, I decided just to take electrical engineering as a major. Now, to start with, they, because of the war veterans that have been away from school for so long, I, they had a, a refresher course that the university offered, 
mm-hmm. starting in January of forty of forty six. And uh, so I participated in that before I got into the real. Well, you know, I want to ask you a question too, because um, as a veteran, I didn't go to college and I didn't get my bachelor's degree until I was thirty eight. I didn't get my master's degree until I was fifty. Um, so everyone I went to school with was a heck of a lot younger than me and oh, yeah. hadn't had some of the experiences that I had. And I wonder if you experienced it too. And what was that like for you? Well, I I I feel that I never uh, had the feeling of a a kid out of high school going to college. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I think for the most part, veterans are just there to. Looking at a as a job preparation for sure, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were more interested in getting the degree and getting out rather than taking part in a fraternity and all <laughs> these other things that that uh, students like to get into. Right. A little more serious about your education, yeah. maybe than some of. Yeah, and also, I met my future wife, you know, and uh, so we were married in. When I was a junior in college, so how did you meet? Well, well, I guess it was just out of dance. Uh, mm-hmm. Just out of dance. So did you ask her to dance, or did she ask you to dance? Well, I don't know. that work, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure I asked her to dance. Yes, <laughs> but she she was already a, a college graduate. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was working at the. Veteran Readjustment Center at the University of uh, Michigan uh, Hospital. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, was she a nurse? Or no, was she, she, no, she was just, um, oh, I, I don't know why. I never can remember exactly what her major was, but she, she took a lot of histories of uh Patients, you know. Oh, okay. And uh, pass that out off the line, you know, for veterans that needed help. So you met her at this dance? And yeah. You, I'm, I'm assuming you dated for a little while. Well, then uh, we dated and we finally got married in 1948. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. And then you, um, it sounds like you've started your life a, a lot, right? You, uh, <laughs> you had your whole military career and all of that and then you kind of went to college and then you you got married and um so you graduate from college you're a married man oh now what married man and uh, a pregnant wife <laughs> and fortunately i got a job with the new york bar so right out of college right and, out of college, work for yeah. consumers. Uh-huh. and uh uh we had our first child uh six months after i started working that's yeah. exciting. Started in February 40, 40, 50. February 50, and my oldest daughter was born August of 50. Mm-hmm. And what did you, what did you, uh, what were, what did you do at Consumers when you started there? Uh, it was in the electric transmission engineering department. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's where you stayed your, your whole career? The reason was because that's, that's the only, uh, job, I guess, in a company that didn't spin out to the divisions for some reason or another. Uh-huh. It was strictly, strictly all in the, uh, general office. Oh. So, 
Very nice. That's where I wound up. So you had you had your daughter, and um, what's her name? If you don't mind my asking. Carol. Carol. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, so you have more children, right? I have five. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought you had more than one. Yeah. Five. <laughs> yeah. Three boys, two girls. Oh my gosh, that must have kept you busy. Well, I guess it did. I guess it did. But we made some really good friends, you know, like in Bridge and Pinochle and uh, and uh, I wound up with a boat out at the lake at Clark Lake at Consumers uh, location out there. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So I had a boat out there for years and. I had a good family, good family life along with working here in Jackson. Yeah. Yep. And you you said now that you have uh, three of your children still live in Michigan, or two? Uh, two boys here in Michigan. Okay. A boy and a girl in Texas. Okay. And uh, a girl in Florida. Okay. And do you get together often? I know the last couple of years have been hard to do that, but uh, other than that, you well, guys. I don't, I don't know if you heard about it, but I was veteran of the day at the Rutgers football game in Ann Arbor this fall. Well, I did, Herb, I did not hear about that. Tell me about that, coming back to your alma mater as the veteran of the day. What was that like? Well, uh, it was uh, touchy. Uh, my, My youngest son, who lives in New Lansing, he was contacted because he's a U of M grad also. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to recognize uh, uh, an alum, Michigan grad. What what better what better person than, yeah, yeah, than better, yeah. really honestly. So I was uh I was supposed to be veteran of the day that day, you know. Put up on the screen on the game, you know. <laughs> With three of my grandkids next to me on the field, and uh, 106,000 plus fans, uh, the big house cheering, gets loud. Cheering for me, so the big house gets loud, doesn't it? Oh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a touching, touching event. Yeah. And and a good game. Yeah, we won. For, we won. We won the score, but we we lost the game pretty much. Yeah. yeah, well, that's true. But you did. You did, at the, the end of the day, the score. Yeah, uh, the right. score was good. Rutgers put up a pretty yeah. good, yep. pretty good fight there. Um, so anyway, all five of the kids were able to come back for that occasion. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it must have been great to have them all together at one time. Yes, it was. And uh, and my only son arranged for tickets for all of them through people he knew and so mm-hmm. forth and so forth. And, and uh, I guess. Uh, there was like uh, sixteen relatives of some kind of grandkids and great grandkids and so how many grandkids and great grandkids do you have? I, I have uh, I have eight grandkids. Uh huh. And uh, seven great grandkids. Must be pretty amazing to see your family grow yeah, yeah, and continue to grow. It like sure that. is. It sure is. Yeah. So we uh, were talking before we got on on microphone, and uh, you said that last year you hit that uh, magic spot where you 
were retired for 35 years and you had worked for 35 years. So now we're turning that corner where you're going to have more time where you haven't been at work necessarily than you were at, at work. And yeah. uh, what? how does that feel to be kind of in that situation? Well, it feels good just to be taken care of here, for instance. Yeah. And also, it feels good to have had investments that didn't look too bad to work. And I feel very comfortable for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, that's good. And in March uh, is a pretty big milestone, too. Yeah, you, you turn 100. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, a, an amazing feat all, you know, in itself. It is. It, it is. Yeah. So I, I have to ask, um, you know, you've had, you've lived quite a life. It doesn't sound like there are a whole lot of dull moments, uh, in, in your life. Well, it's, it's had its challenges, but it's also had its fantastic, uh, times so too. We've had an excellent life here in Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, raising a family and working with consumers. A great company like Consumers. Oh, yes. Well, and I wanted to ask you, what. so uh, when you came to Jackson, uh, did your wife continue working in Arbor? Did she? No. No, she was pregnant at the time I came. And mm-hmm. the, only, the only job she's done then is uh, she worked, what do, we, what do we do every 10 years? <laughs> census. Oh, census takers. She worked, she worked during, during census mm-hmm. taking in 1950. So she... Had her first child then in uh, in August, and she was a busy mother from then on. I was going to say, with five children, it's not like she didn't have a job. <laughs> Certainly, she uh, she worked very, very, uh, very hard every day. So, it's, it's yeah, it's uh, very satisfactory. Well, good, and you know something else I want to ask too is, um, what do you do? to take care of yourself for your own personal well-being. I mean, someone doesn't live to be a hundred and not take care of themselves. So what are some of the things that you do? Well, oh, it's it's almost to the point, well, what did I did? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I, I've always been fairly active, mm-hmm. but I've never, I've never done anything with a real big concentration, like running every day for five miles, for instance. You know? Right. Yeah. So I've I've been uh, active in golf and uh, and tennis and uh, skiing. And I used to ride my bike quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've done the, those little little things, but never any. To the point of it doing me in, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah. Enough to to keep you active and, and healthy. Yeah, I guess so. And I probably have got some pretty good genes too. I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> it must. It must be. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like your family uh, was very hardworking, and uh, you know, you, uh, you well, can't be a farmer and no, not work hard. You got. You got that right. Yeah. So we've had, you know, the family. My original family have had its uh, uh, downfalls, you know, like my mm-hmm. one sister was killed in a, in a car crash, and 
another sister died at a young age of St. Vitus Dance in Montana. And, and uh, the rest of them, I guess, all lived pretty good. My oldest brother was 89 when he passed. My younger, oldest sister was 97 when she passed. Uh, my brother, I was just older than me, had cancer throat cancer because of his probably got it when he was because of his work condition but I suppose mm-hmm. he he died when he was 65 or something like that and I'd have one one brother left he just turned 90 in this past July so I went to Montana to his uh, 90th retirement Oh, that must have been that must have been nice. To, yeah, it was yeah. to see him. Yeah, his wife his wife planned a a three day affair, and there was a lot of family came back for the occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, just one last thing I wanted to ask you um, before we before we go, and that is, you know, what message would you like to leave for people? Uh, as a as a result of this podcast, I mean, you've lived an exciting life. Um, you know, you uh, you're coming up on a hundred years old. What what message would you like to give to the audience? Well, I, <laughs> it, uh, it's kind of tough to give you a really good one, I suppose, because you don't really have that answer. I tend to let. Little things not bother me, for instance. Mm-hmm. If I don't get excited over what seemingly to me doesn't matter, you know. And uh, and uh, I I think I've done things in moderation rather than concentrate on certain things mm-hmm. in particular. Uh, yeah, I guess getting back to sports, <laughs> uh, you know, when you, when you, when you add these years, you know, your, your body just doesn't function like, uh, it did in your younger years. However, it works, but not, not necessary to its best pass. Mm-hmm. But, uh, a year ago this last August, my uh daughter and her husband from Florida were in uh, we'd been we'd been camping together and we decided to play nine holes of golf at at the Park here in town. Yeah. And on hole number sixteen at the Ellishar Park, I got a hole in the one. What in the world? <laughs> and that, that was my last day of golf that I played. <laughs> always always good to to leave on success, right? Well, I, I, I guess so. So this past year, I haven't even touched a golf club. Uh-huh. Hard, hard, to, hard, to, hard to live up to the hole-in-one, right? <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> and they both, my daughter and her husband both saw it go in. So, you know, it was a... I guess. I guess. I yeah. I've tried to play golf. I'm just not very good at it. 
and uh, so I, I do other things. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have golf clubs. Well, my I've played a lot of good a lot of golf with good friends here in town. Mm-hmm. We we would go away uh, quite often in the spring of the year for for uh, a week of golf someplace like uh, in uh, Florida or someplace. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, it, it's been good. Uh, I, uh, I should have taken lessons when I started. I didn't start until I came to work for Consumer Power in 1950. <laughs> it was probably an important game to know back then, wasn't it? <laughs> well, everybody seemed to play, so <laughs> the guys I was working with, they, they talked me into getting started. Mm-hmm. And, I never took any lessons, which I should have taken, you know, but I guess my one best day was that when I reached 80, I shot my score of 80 in, uh, at the park. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the park's been good to you. It has, it has been, it has been, yeah. You yeah. couldn't have planned that any better. No. Not at all. So, uh, all right. Well, thanks for thanks for taking time to oh. sit and talk with me. This has been incredible for me As a, to okay. talk with you. I just, okay. um, you know, I uh, I was uh, telling somebody the other day that uh, my grandfather lived a, a really different life. He grew up in Missouri and uh, lived on a, a riverboat for a while, uh, and then became a bootlegger. Uh, bootlegged uh, whiskey for a long time, um, but uh, decided to move him and his family up to Michigan um, for work and uh, left his life of crime behind him. Um, but he would always talk, he would always tell his stories. And my uh, other uh, uh, cousins and everything really didn't, they didn't want to hear Grandpa talk about the old days, right? But I loved to listen to his stories. And my only regret is that I didn't write them down or record them somehow because, I mean, that he's gone now, and so are all of his stories except for what I remember him telling me. And uh, people's lives are, are important. And I, I think the things that we have done on some level are important. And to capture all that and share it with others uh, is, uh, I think we can learn from the past. Because we think we have it hard now, mm-hmm. but... But it was hard then, too. Um, And we persevere through all of it. And I think it's important for people to remember that. that, Yeah, we've had a pandemic for two years and we've been locked down. But um, there was a time when people didn't have jobs and people lost their homes and their livelihoods. And they persevered and they figured things out. And it was not easy. It It was not. But it brought... In some ways, it brought families closer together. Yeah. Um, in, in some ways, it made us better people. Uh, and I think it's so important for people to know that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Veterans Archives, the podcast that brings you the story of the men and women who have created and lived our military history. If you or someone you know served in the military and would like to share your story with Veterans Archives, please go to www veteransarchives.org, select the Apply Now button, and fill out our application, and someone will get right back with you. 
Veterans Archives is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we rely on the donations of our listeners. If you are enjoying these stories and you support our efforts, please go to www.veteransarchives.org and select the Donate button. Any donation is certainly appreciated. Look for Veterans Archives on your favorite social media. We are on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for Veterans Archives. Like, follow, and share our page. We'd certainly appreciate it. If you or someone you know is a veteran and you are struggling with mental health issues, please dial 988 and select option 1 for the Veterans Crisis Hotline. Please be sure to tune in next time for the next episode of Veterans Archives.